People are yearning for information. Having the opportunity to encourage people and to educate people and inspire people. It's amazing to be able to say we'll carve out time to take care of ourselves. There's something for everyone. Mark Coleman is our guest today on Health Gig. Mark is an inner and outer explorer who has devotedly studied mindfulness meditation practices for over three decades. Mark is a psychotherapist, a life coach, and a mindfulness consultant to so many corporations. He is passionate about sharing the power of meditation and has taught mindfulness workshops and meditation retreats in six continents for the past 20 years. He has written four books, including the book that we're going to talk about today, A Field Guide to Nature Meditation. Welcome to Health Gig, Mark. Thank you. Thank you. We're so excited because Trish and I both love the work you do. We're big followers of yours. But before we have the millions of questions we have for you, we want to begin by asking you a little bit about you and where you grew up and your family and all of that. Yes. Well, I am from England. I grew up in Northern England in Northumberland, kind of a wild, rugged country bordering Scotland. I grew up there till I was about 17 and then made my way to London and went to college. And that's when I actually discovered meditation, spent many years there. And then eventually my journey took me to India and to study with various teachers there. And then eventually ended up in the US and then fell in love with the wilderness here and the beautiful wild landscapes of this continent and couldn't leave. <laughs> you know, Mark, India is a place that people gravitate to because why? Yeah, it's a great question. I think many people were disaffected by the religions that they had grown up with here in the West. And India has, for millennia really, has been such a rich, deep spiritual culture, particularly the home of many very profound meditation traditions. And at the time, it just so happened there was a confluence of a restlessness and a seeking in the West for different spiritual teachings. And there happened to be a plethora of really amazing, profound wisdom teachers in India and environs. That confluence created this really rich spiritual crucible where many figures we look to today, like Ramdas, for example, and Joseph Goldstein or Jack Cornfield or Sharon Salzberg happened to be there studying with these really, really amazing teachers. And I think Ramdas, you know, was the sort of the spearhead of that. And I think it woke up a generation to, oh, there's another way of looking at the world, at life, a way of studying the mind. And it was offering possibility of meditation and training and practice that wasn't so available for most people in, say, North America or Europe. And so that started that pilgrimage. And that, I think that was very rich for, I'd say, at least a few decades. And then those same teachers came to North America, Europe, and, and elsewhere, and they became, you know, over their own decades of practice and teaching, became quite masterful in their own right. They became less of those great masters in, say, India, at least to, from my experience, than people realize, oh, I can actually get the same wisdom teachings here because people have been practicing and teaching now for 20, 30, 40 years. When you were there, were Sharon Salzberg and Jack Cornfield, were they all there or they preceded you? They definitely preceded me. And then you came to study with maybe them when you got here? 
I studied a lot with Joseph Goldstein in his center in Barry. Did many three-month retreats with Joseph and Sharon, and then studied with and did teacher training with Jack Cornfield, and then ended up teaching with all of those three, and they became dear friends and colleagues and mentors. Do you work with Tara Brock? I used to. We used to teach together, and they're still good friends, and it's very much a, a very sweet insight meditation family. How did you get involved in the wild? What inspired you about nature to begin all of that? I think for many of us, we can trace back our love of nature to time in childhood, whether we just had access to a woodland or a beach or a pond or summer vacation where our family was taking us somewhere wild. I grew up on the edge of farmland and the edge of the coast. And so I was able to escape <laughs> the family life and the urban, you know, grit. And I just felt very at home. My pivotal memory was I was lying down and we'd go out in the middle of uh, wheat fields and we'd borrow these little tunnels and create a little nest in the middle of these wheat fields and lie down and just spend the summers gazing up at clouds and just really enjoying this beautiful pastoral landscape. And so something in that really touched me. But it wasn't till well, I started meditating and I moved to the country into a meditation center and I began to see, oh, being in nature is not dissimilar to meditation, that the peace, tranquility, calm, clarity that I find in meditation, I can also access in nature very easily. And then when I came to the US, and as I mentioned, you know, I, I got a camper van in Florida, spent many months driving across beautiful landscapes, the prairies, the East Coast, the Rocky Mountains, up the Sierra Nevada in California, into the Redwood Groves. And I just was spellbound by the beauty and the vastness and the wild ruggedness of the wilderness. And so I was just drawn to spending a lot of time outdoors. And because I had a deep meditation practice, I was also meditating outdoors. And then I started doing my own personal meditation retreats outdoors. It seemed like the obvious place for me. I loved being in nature. I felt the serenity and joy of being outdoors. Over time, I realized this was a really valid, authentic form of meditation practice, of spiritual practice. And then when I started teaching, I was invited to lead a wilderness retreat in Navajo country in, in Arizona. And I led a 10-day silent backpack retreat through these gorgeous red rock canyons, very still and silent. That was about 20 years ago. And I thought to myself, why would I want to teach anywhere else but in the beauty and the serenity of nature? And when nature, in a way, does a lot of the work, it invites us into the present. It invites us to be quiet, to be embodied, to be in our senses, and it opens the heart. And that really changed my life. And since then, that's mostly what I've been devoted to. Wow. And do you obviously feel that we are nature? Yeah. So that's been a very rich and I think will be, a, it's a lifelong exploration that, you know, we tend to normally think I'm me and nature's out there outside my, in my garden or in the forest or in the wilderness somewhere. And yet when we meditate, especially when we're contemplative outside and we get quiet and we're sitting, say, in a woodland, say, we realize, oh, I am actually in this moment, part of the forest. Like the birds are relating to me, just like they relate to, they might see a bobcat 
or a coyote on the ground and they change their bird song because there's a predator around and they'll see me and they'll similarly do some kind of change in their bird song. I began to feel as you sit on the earth, you know, for hours and hours and hours, it's like, oh, I'm not on the earth, even though I am on the earth, but I'm really of the earth. I'm of the earth. I'm just part of the earth's moving surface. And we tend to think of everything else as earth and somehow we're separate or an aberration, but actually we're just, you know, of course we came from the earth and our ancestors came from the earth and we eat the earth and we go back to the earth eventually. There's a way when we're quiet in nature, we get to see, oh, right, I'm an expression of the earth's moving surface. We are the earth's moving surface, just like a coyote is, just like an ant. What really brought that home to me in your book, in one of the meditations, I had an opportunity to do some of them. In one of the meditations, you point out what you just said is that the birds change their bird song when we're there because, you know, we always think in nature, oh, look, there's a fox or we're seeing, but we don't realize that nature's seeing us, which brings home the point that Trisha made, we are nature. We are part of it. We are. We are nature. We are one. Definitely, Dora. And that's a, a beautiful thing that I've been exploring the last few years of, you know, with mindfulness. Mindfulness is, as you know, the practice of being aware, of being present, of knowing, knowing what's happening in our experience. And I've begun to shift that lens to, yes, it's about knowing what's happening, but it's also being aware of being known, being known yes. by the trees, being known by the snake sensing your heat or the animals smelling our scent or the trees feeling our presence as we sit at their roots. And so that begins this beautiful dance of reciprocity where we realize we're always in relationship. We're not just me going through right. the and having a nice time. Yeah, that might be happening. And we're in relationship where other creatures are knowing us and feeling us and sensing us, smelling us. And it really, it's a very delicious intimacy that we enter into. The vision I have is like the grass and everything. And all of a sudden we go marching through with our backpacks and everything, almost like we're like the parade. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> and of course you know, they're like, going to sense us. Us <laughs> nature's going to be like, whoa, what's <laughs> happening? Right. We're, exactly. we're pretty loud. And we're loud. Yeah. We're like we're talking, loud. you know, and right. they're like, whoa, when's that over? <laughs> we are a slightly idiosyncratic, quirky part of nature, but so is so much of life. I mean, there's so many beautiful, wild and wonderful expressions and humans are no different in that way. Some of the work that Trish and I do is in conservation. Once we understand that we're part of nature, that we're all part of it, don't we change our perspective on how to take care of the earth and how to take care of each other and how to take care of nature? Yeah, absolutely. I, it's one of the, really, I think it's the cornerstone of the work that I do in my Awaken the Wild work, which is this phrase, we protect what we love. And so when we go outside, and especially when we go out mindfully and we slow down and we become more sensitive and we take in the beauty and the richness and the diversity, and we can't help when, you know, when a butterfly flies past or a hummingbird comes and buzzes at our face, or we see the delicacy of a flower unfolding or, or so many kinds of ways that we're touched by the natural world. 
we can't help but feel either fondness or affection or appreciation or gratitude. And often what is underneath that or what flows from that is love. We start falling in love with trees and with beetles and with the salmon returning home from their migration and the sparrows that have returned overwintering. So that love, of course, when we love something, of course, we care deeply about it. We care deeply and feel sad when it's being hurt or desecrated. And it also inspires us probably the most deep inspiration to try and take care, to try and live more lightly, to try and live more in harmony, to not have our life or our actions harm either the ecosystem we're in or species or the air or whatever. And that's really why I invite people out into nature in this contemplative way, is I hope that they both wake up, they fall in love, and they become better stewards of the earth. Because as you know, we all need more champions of the earth, given where right. we are. And it becomes your home, really. You know, you fall in love, but then you feel at home. Expands the sense of self to... I'm not just this limited skin-bound thing, or the reach of my care doesn't just go to my family or immediate, you know, sort of circle, but actually realize, oh, it's all part of me and it's all family and we need to take care of all of it as it's taking care of us. We need to take care of the soil because the soil is what's producing our food and right now we tend to be polluting the soil, which is, you know, harming our own skin. It's that simple. And that often sounds kind of like a nice idea, but when we spend more time outside, it gets more real. It moves from the head to a lived visceral experience. And that's the difference. Oh, that's you know? so good. Yeah. Our, you know, our minds are amazing and powerful, but when the heart's engaged, when we connect in that intimate way, that's what really moves us as human beings. So my main message to people is, go outside, go outside, go outside. Yeah. And, you know, take a walk in your neighborhood, go to the park, go down, visit a stream when the rains like they are. I'm in California, the rains are howling here and I spend my time walking up streams and falling in love with the wildness of nature. And like, so the more we're outside, the more that nature has that ability to influence us. But the key thing, and it's what I talk about a lot in my Awaken the Wild work, is doing that with mindfulness as the work that you've been doing for so long around mindfulness, because we can go out into nature and be completely oblivious. We can be on our phones, we can have yeah. this podcast, we can be chatting with a friend. And like, did we go past that stream? I don't remember. But when we go out with awareness, mindfulness, we slow down, more sensitive, more open. That's when we're really optimizing that intimacy of relationship and letting the natural world touch us and then move through us and inform us. The benefits, right, to our bodies being in nature, I mean, isn't it a scientific fact that we begin to calm down, right? Yes, Stress absolutely. Levels. There's a lot of good research about how it lowers cortisol levels, lowers heart rate, stress levels go down. We start to feel a sense of well-being, a sense of connection. I mean, there's doctors prescribing it for stress, for mental health conditions, for people who are overly addicted to screen time in South Korea and Japan. I'm hearing those studies. And we all know this intuitively, like we feel stressed, we feel annoyed or whatever. We cooped up in our houses or offices and we go, I mean, it's like, I need to go out. I need to go for a walk. And even if it's Get just walking air. in your neighborhood, what do you see? You see skies, you see trees, you see flowers and gardens, and that connects us with something greater than ourselves. We get so lost and so cramped in our minds, in our own world, our self-preoccupation, 
to an extent that it's not healthy. You know, we're becoming an indoor species. They say the average American spends 95% of their time indoors. And that's wow. not how we've lived. We've grown up, evolutionarily speaking, where we spend most of our time. We were, we were in the outdoors. There wasn't any indoors and outdoors. So it's very healthy, even just taking a walk, you know, just walking around your neighborhood, or if you can, a park, or if you're lucky, woodland or along the beach or something. And it's so restorative without even trying. You just, all you have to do is be present, get off your phone, come out of your head and be present to your senses. And that's one of the reasons why I love this nature work that I do is that for so many people, meditation is a struggle and mindfulness is a challenge and we have to work with our mind and there's so many busy thoughts. And But when we go outdoors, nature is inviting us into the present. You know, the wind blows and we feel our skin. We step on the soft grass and we feel that. And then we catch a whiff of scent from some blossoming flowers. And then the sun comes out and lights up the trees. So many ways with the natural world is saying, here, 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 be here, be here. And not only be here, wow, it's actually interesting. Oh, it's also beautiful. Oh, it's really captivating. Being mindful actually becomes relatively easy. Like if you go for a walk on the beach and you just tell people, just be present for half an hour, go for a walk along the shoreline, come back 15 minutes up and back. They don't have to work like, okay, be present to the waves. (laughs) It's like, no, you're just noticing the seagulls and the wave, the light and the crunch of the sand. And so I think it's how we've always been mindful is going outdoors, you know, and this work that I'm teaching is a way of sort of formalizing that, you know, into a structure, into practices. But the essence is nature's, I use this word allure, it allures us into the present because it's beautiful, you know, and interesting. It's dynamic. As you connect to and learn to become fully present in nature, what can happen? The first thing I think that happens is is we come into the present moment. We come out of our heads and all of the tumble dryer of thoughts. And then we, I'm just, I'm kind of visualizing myself. I walk outside, what happens? Well, first I realize, oh, there's a whole universe of experience outside of me and my life, right? So I can go outside and notice, oh, it's winter. Oh, it's a cold wind. Oh, it's a gray, cloudy sky. Oh, I hadn't noticed that it was winter today. And then I notice perhaps, and I come into my body, you know, when we're at home on our, or in our offices, you know, looking at the computer, we barely realize we have a body unless it's hungry or achy. We go outside and suddenly we feel the wind on our skin. We feel the, the freshness of air. We feel invigorated because there's more oxygen. Our senses start to open. There's a whole huge greater array of color. So we look out and just where I'm looking at now, I'm, I'm in a sort of an urban neighborhood and I see this huge array of color of trees. I see movement when we're indoors, everything's static. So I feel alive. I start to feel, oh, I'm connected to this particular ecosystem, you know, which I'm in Northern California and it's winter and it's rainy and I'm part of that whole weather system in a way. And then I also start to feel lighter. Usually I start to feel brighter. I have more energy. And then for me, nature is just such a panorama of joy. Like there's so many things that touch us, you know, just the glistening leaf, which wet in the rain, Oh, I saw my first winter flower yesterday, this little cute, beautiful little purple flower just growing out of the mud and feeling life's tenacity. I was at 
spirit rock where I teach. And I was looking out the window and I saw two coyotes walking across the meadow. And so my heart starts to feel you know, enlivened and sometimes ecstatic. And I feel expansive because suddenly I'm not in a building with an eight foot ceiling, but I've got this, you know, vast sky. So I'm feeling spacious and I notice I feel more relaxed and just more ease and well-being. And I'm not trying to be happy. I'm not trying to be connected. <laughs> just, it's just what happens. Yeah. And then of course I'll notice, oh, I've got to get to that project and I've got to do that meeting and I've got to, I notice that. And then, and then something else grabs my attention because the wind whips up again or a bird flies by and I go, oh, right. The swallows are coming back from migration. How cool. Or the fields are turning green after winter. And so it's very enlivening. And it can spark curiosity. You then want to go learn about maybe the migrating birds or things like that. Definitely. Like, for example, where I am, I face Richardson Bay, which is part of the greater San Francisco Bay. And last week, there was thousands and thousands of birds came into the bay. What I've come to understand is that when that winter migration happens, partly they're following the migration of herring. So the herring come in from their migration in the ocean, and then they start populating the bay, they start laying the eggs, and then there's this huge array of pelicans and cormorants. I mean, thousands of birds come in, start feeding off the eggs and the herring. Yeah, it gets me curious. Oh, what's going on? And then I start hearing sea lions. Sea lions come across from San Francisco because they know the herring are running. And suddenly I'm aware of this amazing ecosystem that's very rhythmic and you know seasonal. And yeah, that gets me curious about, oh, I always wondered what those rather large sea lions eat when they, you know, hanging yeah, out. Yeah. They seem to hang out on the beach <laughs> all day, but they're, you know, they're amazing hunters. And so yeah, it, it sparks curiosity. Sometimes I'm sitting in a forest and I'm thinking about how oxygen is released from the pine needles and the leaves. And I start thinking, wow, how does this plant figure out how to harness energy from the sun? This simple leaf yeah. has figured out something that we will never be able to do, which is transform that energy of sunlight into energy. It leads, yeah, into both curiosity and the curiosity leads to wonder. Like yeah, how does the dragonfly yes. use its four wings? The dragonfly is the most adept flyer because it has four wings and it can fly in any direction. How did that unfold? How did the color, like the, I was looking at a peacock yesterday and this incredible plumage of greens, Golds and it's miraculous. And it's so awe-inspiring. So it's wonder and then it's just awe. Uh, yeah. Awe, like, whoa, like you didn't feel that since you were a kid. Do you know what I mean? It's like, wow, you know? And there's a lot of good research being done on awe by Greater Good Science Center, Dacca Keltner and others. I think for most of us, the most accessible place that we touch awe is in nature. People are asked about their profound spiritual experiences of the sacred, of divine. 80, 90% will say it's in nature. You know, it's, yeah. it is our original church, temple. You have this wonderful book that's just come out. Is it your fourth book? It is my fourth book, yeah. It's a field guide to nature meditation, and you've got 52 mindfulness practices for joy, wisdom, Incredible. and wonder. It's a wonderful book. Trish and I both love it. How do people use this book? The idea came to me, you know, I've been teaching a lot of these practices and I thought, well, what would be a good kind of a manual for nature meditation? And I thought, well, how about people have a practice a week to do and to explore and just to get a feel for all the array of different practices. And then once you try these different practices, then of course, some will resonate more than others. 
And so the idea was to just sample a meditation a week, explore it, play with it, feel it out, try it in different environments. They're really just like the keys to the doorway into nature. There might be a practice called meandering with joy, where you simply let yourself wander, meander through a landscape, could be your garden, local park, forest, and you just let yourself meander and see what touches you with joy and delight. Or there's a practice about listening. You know, listening is like a quintessential nature practice. We just go outside somewhere into our garden, into the woods, and the primary focus of attention is just listening to all the symphony of sounds, the wind, the leaves rustling, birds singing, whatever sounds of the water or waves or the rain. And so the idea is just to see that there's so many different ways that we can be mindful in nature and how that being mindful in nature opens a doorway into presence, awareness, connection, joy, love, all kinds of different qualities. Such a beautiful practice. Yeah. And so one of the things that's coming out of that is I'm actually just about to start a, in February, a year-long community where people can join the community and they get to practice alone together, a practice a week. So I'll be guiding people through this year-long journey just as a way to deepen in that exploration and use the book as a manual. But there's something about when we do that together, we're much more likely to engage. Kind of do it. Yes. Yeah. And the book designed partly for people who haven't meditated before and who want to try this particular style of mindfulness practice. And it's very much also attuned to people who have a meditation practice, mindfulness practice, or whatever kind of practice, and then want to take that practice outdoors. You know, so there's practices about love, there's practices about standing meditation, walking meditation, about cultivating curiosity and wisdom and insight. And so a lot of these practices will feel very familiar to people because the meditations that are taught indoors. And it's just like, what does that look like outdoors when you're meditating with an open awareness or spaciousness and seeing how nature informs? When I first started teaching this work, I felt like, oh, you know, I was slightly doing something a little avant-garde compared to what my colleagues were doing in these meditation centers. And at some point I realized, wait a minute, the Buddha was born in a forest. Yeah. He practiced in a forest. He attained awakening under trees. He taught for 45 years <laughs> in the forest and died under some trees. You know, so many great teachers, they didn't have nice air conditioned. Right, right. They were living in the forest, in the mountains, in caves, and teaching <laughs> and meditating. And often the Buddha would say, you know, after he finished teaching, he'd say, go find a tree, sit at the root of the tree, establish mindfulness there. And I think so many great spiritual teachers over the centuries, they've been informed and inspired by nature. Jesus in the desert or the Buddha in the forest or any number of great sages have been inspired by the nature. natural world. Mm -hmm. It just made me think when you were saying that about the hymn, joy to the world, the Lord has come, let earth receive his king. And then the refrain is, let heaven and nature sing. And it just made me think of that, the Buddha in the forest. Right. It all does begin with nature, doesn't it? It just does. It just yeah, does. it really does. The book and, and my work is really just reminding us of what we know. You know, we all have some connection with nature, even if we're a city dweller. And so it's like, it's waking up, it's rekindling what's already in our DNA. Hundreds of thousands of years as a species, we've intimate with forests and grasslands. All of our senses, like our eyes developed color sight because we had to discern the different colors of berries and edibles. We had to learn that different things had different colors 
like a blueberry, which is edible versus so many red berries, which are toxic. All of our senses co-developed as we developed a relationship with nature, not just our species, but also species that came before us. We're just waking up this ancient connection. You know, one thing that Dora and I are spending time with now is introducing children that live in cities that don't have access yeah, wonderful. to nature. Can you talk about why you think our work is important? <laughs> <laughs> yes. People talk to me about the mindfulness revolution, which it sort of has been the last 20 years. I've always said the most important work that happens with mindfulness is the teaching of our children. Probably in the past, even the last 10 years, millions and millions of school kids have had this chance to learn how to be present, to be mindful, to work with their emotions, to self-regulate. You know, you can be skillful with your thoughts. And I think even though there's amazing things happening with mindfulness in business, in healthcare, in education, in psychology, that the training of a generation of children to be mindful and present, we don't even know the long-term positive impact of that, but it's significant. And same thing with what you're doing in nature. One of my aspirations, I haven't actualized it yet, but I'm really deeply longing to have the work that I do with mindfulness and nature be accessible to kids and to take kids from the inner city or whatever communities don't have that access or resources or privilege to be outdoors. I think it's incredibly important. It goes back to that conversation we were talking about earlier about protecting what we love. If we grow up and we have no relationship to nature, if we've grown up in an urban environment and life revolves around TVs and screens, when we hear about, oh, you know, there's a wetland that's being drained because we need more parking lots for the city's parking, whatever, it'd be like, well, whatever, wetland, who cares? We need more parking lots. Let's just build parking lots. If maybe our biology teacher took us to a wetland and we saw, wow, there's all these geese and herons and frogs and beautiful rushes. And we hear about the wetland being paved over. We'll be like, no, we need to preserve those. We need to fight to defend those. That, that's part of the health of the ecosystem. So I think taking kids, just like probably you and I have had these very formative experiences as children, then when we're adults, it's much easier for us to connect with the forest. I've worked with youth, incarcerated youth, and people who didn't have that access to nature and taken them to wilderness places, wilderness retreat centers. And they've been terrified because to them, the forest is unknown. It's unsafe. It makes me sad. And it takes a while to sort of like have to not re-educate, that's the really wrong word, but to have people become reacquainted with the earth. And what is their birthright, really? You know, I think the work that you're doing, taking kids out is really, really both beautiful and powerful for them, but the long-term impact of raising a generation that has connection to the earth and therefore loves the earth and therefore will protect the earth, that's where we are as a species. If we don't raise generations that care for the earth, we're going to keep repeating the harm and putting the life of all species at risk. So yes, kudos for you for doing that work. Your retreats, Spirit Rock, if you can tell us about that, and then also about your work with Silly in Search Inside Yourself. Spirit Rock is an insight meditation center, as you know. It's in Northern California, just north of the Bay Area. And when I first came to the US and I came to the West Coast, I kind of landed at Spirit Rock and it became my spiritual home and where I 
did my meditation practice and then went through teacher training. And then I've been teaching there for 20 some years. It's a very pioneering meditation center based in the Buddhist tradition, the insight meditation tradition. And they offer retreats and trainings and programs and teacher trainings. And it's a very beautiful home and center for the practice of meditation. And I think the centers like Insight Spirit Rock and Insight Meditation Society, they really were the precursor to the mindfulness movement. Like most of the mindfulness teachings and practices came from these centers and these teachers, Jack Cornfield, Joseph Goldstein, who brought these beautiful teachings from Southeast Asia. There's a lovely connection to that lineage. And, you know, I also run mindfulness teacher trainings and very much drawing on the richness of my own study in the insight meditation tradition lineage. And then search inside yourself. Can you explain the work that you do there? And is it a different kind of practice? Yeah. Well, I think it's similar to a lot of the work that you've both been doing. So about 15 years ago, I was invited by Procter and Gamble at a really interesting innovation think tank that a colleague of mine, Ivy Ross, had developed at Mattel. And they wanted to integrate mindfulness into how they were problem solving and innovating. And so it was my first foray into taking mindfulness practices, which I learned exclusively in the Buddhist tradition, into a corporate setting. This was 2004, and it was sort of before the wave of mindfulness has become so prevalent in corporate culture now. I realized most people in the US and beyond are not going to walk into a Buddhist center in the yeah. middle of the country <laughs> to learn meditation. They're just not. Very few, the lucky few will sort of stumble in there, but most people are going to be just, it's just, it's too outside the frame of reference. So I started this thing called the Mindfulness Institute as a way of taking the richness of mindfulness and meditation in the Buddhist tradition that I learned into a more secular setting. And of course, that process has been replicated by numerous people doing wonderful work. There's all kinds of organizations now, including yours, that take these powerful mindfulness practices into psychology and healthcare and education and business and government. And so one of those companies is Search Inside Yourself. And of course, there are many others I could give a shout out to. It was developed at Google. It was a way of integrating mindfulness and emotional intelligence for leadership. And so it was a lot for in the tech sector, but we also took that practice out to many other places. For example, I had the good fortune of teaching this. So it's a two-day mindfulness emotional intelligence program. I had the good fortune of teaching that to the United Nations World Food Aid Program, to country leaders in Senegal. We got invited to Bhutan to work with the government of Bhutan teach all, I think it was 11,000 of their teachers Amazing. and hundreds of their government. So they do beautiful work, both in the for-profit and non-profit sector, trying to find a way to support leaders to develop mindfulness and emotional intelligence in the workplace, which of course is one of the most challenging places. I don't do that work so much anymore. I'm more focused on my own mindfulness teacher trainings and my nature meditation teacher trainings. I always think if there's someone else can do the work as well as you can, then time to move on. And my nature work, there's very few people in this field and there's very few people who can train people. So I'm really devoting myself to that. And I think also because of what we're seeing in the world with the ecological crisis, it's time to really give nature her proper time and attention. We're so glad you are. You are such a joy and delight. So enjoyed this conversation in your book. 
What is your greatest surprise in your life so far? I'd have to put it in the plural. So the greatest things that happened to my life, they happen sort of mysteriously. Like, you know, we can make all kinds of plans and try to make things happen and focus on developing this and cultivating that. But all of the amazing twists and turns of my life, including meeting my former partner who brought me to the States, coming to Spirit Rock and meeting Jack, being invited to teach in nature, being asked to write a book. And I'd never even dreamed of writing a book. And a publisher said, hey, I love your nature meditation work. Write a book. I'm like, oh, no. <laughs> all of the great sort of gifts in my life, they've all been given. Like they've, they've been they're out of the blue surprises. And maybe there's more mystery and connection that I'm not seeing. But I find some of the greatest surprises is that, you know, just like meeting you two, like that came out of who knows where. And right. so, the, so, the, so much of the joys of life come mysteriously. And so I just learned that I've no idea where my life will unfold because I've no idea who will come along and say, hey, what about this? How about doing that? How about collaborating with them? And so I've enjoyed that element of surprise in life that continues to unfold. Well, Mark, thank you. Thank you for yes. joining us on Health Gig. And thank you for all the amazing work you do with nature meditation. And we're just so inspired by you. Well, thank you so much. And thank you for your work. You're doing amazing work <laughs> in the world with all the different conferences and teachings. And so great thank to you. meet fellow travelers on this journey together. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on Health Gig. We loved having you with us. We hope you'll tune in again next week. In the meantime, be sure to like and subscribe to this podcast and follow us on healthgigpod.com. I'm Trisha. And I'm Doro. Be well. <laughs>